should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Hey, everybody. How are you? God bless you. Cory Booker. (laughs) Senator Cory Booker. (laughs) Mayor Cory Booker. Oh, look at that. He curtsies on demand. Oh. Nice to have you all here. Can you, can when I you, did my book launch, there were about 20 people. <laughs> little jealous, Corey. Um, <laughs> you say you're saying. jealous. You're skinnier than me. You have more hair than uh, me. Yeah. You're married with kids. This Give me a, a break. You, you want to switch places? No, you just say, he's saying that so I don't ask the tough question. <laughs> no. Look know, at that hair. You, see, you guys see it's the hair? Mess. It's it a is, mess. It, I just want to run my hands it's through it. It's a mess. I just... <laughs> This is not going as we scripted. <laughs> All right. My first question. I read your book. I'm blown away that you actually I know. read the A politician the book. that actually reads. I know. <laughs> but apparently you're a politician that writes. Can we just kind of time out for a second? No, you cannot Please, time let me out. have I'm one moment. One. I am controlling this moment. <laughs> I want this. Seriously, you write this thing? I did write the book. Because yes. I know politicians. They have ghost writers. They, they have do. all this fancy stuff. And they don't tell. I mean, you That's how we roll in politics. Um, you wrote this. I wrote every you wrote word. every word. Every word of that book. How long did it take you? Uh, a full year. It was painful. It was uh, the hard, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, there were very dark, dark days where I had to call phone friends to talk me off of metaphorical len- uh, ledges, which is really to, to pull me out of the tub of ice cream. Uh, um, <laughs> I literally gave, the last year I was the heaviest I was in my life because my stress, uh, my stress response is to, is to eat. Is eat. Yes, and I, I practice. you're a vegan now. Right? I, and I, I made this, you know, I, I began to Do literally, well, I, I threatened talking. both my two, two of my best friends, I threatened Ben and Jerry, Get me, a, get me, get me a vegan flavor, or I will. I'm a senator now. I will get the CIA after you. Is that <laughs> yes? Is that how you, you will guys be are brought to power? an undisclosed location? Uh huh. Yes. All right. I just want to tell how we met. I just want to tell when I when I had my Gavin moment. Okay. Okay. So political courage is something that is. Uh, 
uh, often not uh, seen as much as it should be. And I watched um, in, uh, in, in a moment where you were mayor of this city and you defied the law in order to marry. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. And, th- and this, was, this was years and years and years before our current president evolved to the issue yeah. between before you saw, it was a long time for that. And literally at the end of the presidential election, uh, they blamed you for the loss of Secretary Kerry. Why are you reminding people that I'm, I broke I'm, the I'm, law? They blame me for Bush. Uh, so I just, oh my gosh. So I, I, watch, I, I watch you a lot and the consistency I see and the courageous stances you take. Most recently, I'm, I'm sitting down um, with my two friends again, Ben and Jerry, and, um, and I see you come out for legalization of marijuana, yeah. which I think in many ways... Uh, yeah, tough you, one. It's a tough one, but I, I, I think one. that the arc of history is, again, trying to catch up to where well, you are. And I appreciate that, and we're going to get to that in, in our limited time, because you talk a lot in this book about, or you write a lot about the issues of criminal justice, which I know are near and dear to all of us here. So let's, let, let, let's get to the book. Um, you know, what struck me about this, and, and I mean this, and I, I really, I'm not just blowing smoke. I wouldn't say anything. So I, I would manipulate my feelings uh, and, <laughs> and, and just sort of push them aside. What struck me about this book, the re- reason I really liked it, A, it wasn't about Washington, D.C., which a lot of folks may just assume because you're a senator, it's about D.C., uh, it's not a book about who's to blame. You're not sitting around finger pointing. It's a book about the dialectic between you and a community of people making a big difference. People with formal authority, people mostly with moral authority, people that stood tall day in and day out that are these unsung heroes that exist from a composite perspective everywhere all across this country. And you connect it to your own journey in a very personal and pointed and I would argue passionate way. And so I just want to compliment you, A, on the, on the framing, but I want to talk to you about some of those characters. Virginia Jones stood tall at five feet. Someone that basically adopted you as her own son. Tell us about her. Well, this is probably one of the more moving things for me to write the book because you think you know your stories from 20 years ago, and I went back as a reporter to, to figure this out and uh, was moved to tears in two interviews um, because of something things said, said to me. But the, the beginning is you have to understand, so my mom gives me this challenge and I say, okay, well, what would I do if I could not fail? And I often joke I decided to follow the philosophy of this great American prophet that I know they study at Stanford and Berkeley, um, and the prophet's name is Chris Rock. And, um, <laughs> and he, say, he says, uh, he goes, why is it often the most violent street in any city is named after the man that stood for nonviolence? And yeah. I moved on to the south end of Martin Luther King Boulevard, which is a street with incredible glory in Newark, even in the mid-90s, beautiful sections of it. But the south end um, in the mid-90s was uh, what seemingly chaos. Uh, I had worked everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto, but I'd never seen anything like this. In fact, moving in, I had my uh, things stolen from my car as my best friend and I moved myself up, came back to the car, boom, uh, robbery. <laughs> and I was just intimidated. There, there were drug dealers across the street, guys who were dealing drugs. I had some clashes with them. And amidst this all, I was told that the woman who runs this area, as now I'm afraid, used to sit crouched in the bathroom in the, of the building I lived in just watching the drug trade on the street. White friends of mine who would come to visit me, would, would, they couldn't even roll on their windows because guys would be pushing uh, drugs in the car and it was punctuated by violence. 
And so I have some unfortunate moments with some of the guys on the streets who I think saw me with a lot of suspicion. But it's time I go to Miss Jones, still with this arrogance. I'm this Yale law student, and I go up to her like John Wayne. Hello, little filly. I'm Cory Booker. I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. You know, um, I'm here to save you. And um, she had, she could have, like, couldn't be bothered with me, and right. was very gruff and dismissive. And uh, you know, sitting with her at first, I feel like this is suddenly it's like a job interview, and I'm failing the interview. And of course, my arrogance saying, "Well, I don't fail interviews." And um, and so she did something with me that sort of blew my mind, which was to take me to the middle of Martin Luther King Boulevard and say, if you want to help me, tell me what you see around you. And um, I said, what do you mean? And she goes, tell me what you see. And I said, okay, well, I see a crack house and, and the, I described the projects, graffiti. But the more I talked about the neighborhood, the more she seemed just disappointed with what I was saying. And then she finally says, you can't help me. And she starts turning around, walking away from me. And so I run after this woman. I grab her very respectfully. Um, <laughs> and um, I said, what are you talking about? And she wheels around and blew my mind. She goes, boy, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of these people who only sees problems and darkness and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see possibilities, you see hope, you see love, you see the face of God, then you can be one of those people who helps me. And she walks away, leaving me looking at my feet, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus yeah. the lesson. <laughs> but then I, I, then I sort of went, came correct. I went back. Uh, really humbly and just asked to be in her presence. And I, she slowly let me in and eventually she started having me do menial tasks like carrying boxes of you know, sodas for meetings and posting flyers. And eventually months would pass and I started representing, working with her as her young lawyer and we took on the slumlord. And long story short, we, we became partners or at least I became her protege. She's one of the people that pushed me into politics. But the reason why I say it was a... a, a powerful sort of full circle for me to finally be interviewing this woman who was the tenant president of the building since the day they were built in 1969. Her son was murdered in the lobby of those buildings. A, a former guy served in the military, came home to see his mother, was murdered in the lobby. She didn't leave. She made enough money to live outside of the projects. I moved into the projects, lived there for about eight years. And these buildings were tough. I mean, elevators that would work intermittently, heat and hot water intermittently, roach infestations, mice infestations. It was hard for a young 20-something-year-old and eventually 30-something-year-old, but for the seniors that lived there, the kids that lived there. But this woman, by the force of will, I trace it from before I showed up on the scene to after. But I, I went to interview her, interview people about her. She passed away. But so now it's time to write the book. And I decided to track down everybody, from, especially the guys who dealt uh, drugs in front of the buildings, and found some of them. One guy when he was co just coming out of prison, and the guy who ran the street-level drug trade, who it's like New Jack City. I mean, what he did when he finally told me the truth and then cleared it with, you know, I don't know if he talked to his lawyers or what, to, to really tell me everything. Um, even at one point, he says... Uh, you know, the young guy saw you as a threat. Uh, they were going to shoot you, Corey, but I intervened, and I looked probably afraid. <laughs> and I'm like, really? And he goes, no, no, don't worry about it. They were just going to shoot you in the leg. It was just going to be a warning shot. And I was like, I was like oh, all right, man, okay. Um, so I think the moving part to me about this woman and her, her love is when I went to interview one of her partners, another tenant leader, and told her the story I was writing, she goes, Corey, you've got it all wrong. And I go, what do you mean? And, and she says, Corey, when um, 
Ms. Jones met you that first day and you left. Uh, she went to us and she said, I, I met my son, my son. And, and then the drug dealers that I was, the guys who were dealing drugs that I felt afraid of, and you'll see some of the interactions in the book, I, I uh, talk, we interviewed one guy and he said, Corey, you know, it was Ms. Jones that came downstairs uh, and pulled us aside and said, don't, don't mess with him. And the word that she used was, he's family. And, and so th- th- that's a, th- this power of this woman to see every child as hers, to be like she said to me in that street when she opened her eyes, she saw other people, regardless of who they were, uh, she saw within them the divinity, the glory of God, and, and extended the conception of family uh, to me and to others. Uh, it was one of the best teachers. I, say, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but really got my PhD in the streets of Newark from professors like her. Yeah. So, Miss Jones is the personification of love. Mayor James was not. You ran against an incumbent mayor who allegedly or quite literally was tapping your phones, was sending folks out to put parking tickets on your car, uh, or threaten members of your staff. He called you a Republican who took money from the KKK, among many other things that I can't talk about, though you write about. Yes, uh, but you mentioned a lot of other slurs in there of other ethnic groups and the like. And you know, I joke, you know, I, I'm a uniter. I mean, if I'm bringing all those people together to support me, there must be you know something going on there. Um, but look, the, 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 before you even get to the and by the way, you and I both now probably realize this in your career, when I ran for mayor in 2002 and lost, uh, my advice for people is if you're gonna have a spectacular failure in life, have a documentary team there to capture it. Because you know? <laughs> um, it became an Oscar-nominated, my failure became an Oscar-nominated movie. Um, it lost to another movie you may not have heard of, originally titled March of the Damn Penguins. And uh, I, am, I am a vegan, but now I make an exception for penguin meat. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Wow. Um, wow. It tastes just like chicken, by the uh, way. Yeah, yes. I know. Oh, you think they're cute, but they're I'm not checking your Twitter feed tonight. This is bad. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. 
a special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I think that the, so a lot of this book is sort of my comeuppance. And, and in the period that I hit this amazing, whatever you think of him, uh, he was one of the more amazing political uh, characters in our yeah. country at the time. Yeah. Friends of president, uh, um, leaders around the country who owed him debt. He was Mr. New Jersey for delivering a Democratic base. Right. And when I ran against him, he had the governor against me and uh, pulled in every favor he had to beat me in 2002. In fact, when I was 18 years old at Stanford, for the first time I ever voted at 18, I voted for Jesse Jackson as my in the primary. Right. And then Jesse Jackson showed up about, uh, what was that? That was... Uh, 1988, and then 2002, I ran, and Jesse Jackson was showing up to campaign against me. Yeah, um, gosh, that's, yeah. Oh, that's karma. It's <laughs> rough. <laughs> um, and um, but um, but before that conflict, um, I was at my wit's end in in just my first months as a city council person, uh, facing what was implacable wall. And I really tell the truth in the book. I was kind of a jerk. You know, I entered the city council with this self righteous attitude: "You all are corrupt." Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you were I, going after their perks, going after the council saying, you know, why are you driving a fancy the car? Yeah, I'm better than I, you. Exactly. Yeah. And really wanted to tell the truth that I felt looking back now, um, I was just a jerk and, and I went in there maybe scoring cheap political points right. that brought attention to me. But when it came to passing legislation that could have helped, I was representing the central ward of Newark, one of the poorest census tracts on the East coast. And it, I was so poisoning my relationships with fellow council people that I wasn't able to get things done. So and why I, didn't someone tell you you got to count to five? You got or nine person council, the, the, the senior amazing councilman who used to just say, "Boy, you got to learn to count to five. Yeah. And you can't get anything done to count to five. And I was setting records for being outvoted eight to one on the city council, <laughs> and, and did not know how to count. And so you add that experience yeah. to having these chilling moments with the mayor where I began to suspect he was having me followed. Cops were warning me on the side and all of that. And I just began to, to question why I ever got into politics. Things were going worse and worse and worse. Nothing was getting done. And at the end of my first year, a, a trigger moment in my life where I was ready to quit uh, politics, where a tenant president who was essential in me getting elected from another set of projects that were in really bad shape, lots of violence at these projects, calls me up and starts saying, hey, we had this terrible incident. You gotta get the police out here. And I'm like, I can't get the police to stop ticketing my car. How the heck am I gonna get them to come out and help you? And she starts arguing with me. I start arguing back. And before you know it, I'm, we're raising each other's voice and I slam up, hang up the phone. Yeah. And that was the point I say, I quit and I leave and I go home to Brick Towers where I was living. Just one of those days and you all had them is which you just don't wanna see anybody. You just wanna go home and sulk of course, with your two friends, Ben and Jerry. Um, and um, and I, I get stopped by Miss Jones in front of the building, who was a pain in my neck. She's like, don't you walk past me. And I'm like, Miss Jones, I've had a bad day. I just want to, you better come over here and give me a hug. And I walked over her and gave her the most insincere hug of my life. Um, um, and she said, what's wrong? And it was almost like she touched a sore. And I remember just unleashing on her and saying, what's wrong? Why did I get into politics? Um, you can't get anything done. Um, and I started ranting about a year of wasted energy. And then I said to her, and now Elaine Sewell, who she know, they were both tenant presidents, and I said, this violent accident, I don't know what to do. And I must have said it three or four times. I just don't know what to do about the violence up there. 
And then she looked at me as if God had just spoke to her. Like she said, oh, and I was like, what? And she's like, I know what you should do. And I actually, you know, this is a woman who had shown instances of brilliance before. So I actually stopped and was sort of, she snapped me out of my, the record I was playing and uh, the pity party. And, and I said, what should I do? And she goes, I know exactly what you should do. And I was like, okay, what should I do? And she crosses her arm and she goes, yep, I know what you should do. <laughs> and I was like, Miss Jones, I don't have time to play with you. Um, tell me what to do. And she goes, well, you should do, and I lean forward and she leans forward and she goes, you should do something. And I'm like, what? You should do something. And I'm like, that's it? And she goes, that's it. And I was so angry. As much as I was taught to respect my elders, I wheeled around, stormed away from her, yeah. get to my building. Of course, God has dominion over the earth, but the exception is public housing elevators. They're like, they, they're, they're, the devil controls them, I think. And, and so I hike up these 16 flights because the, right. the, the elevator sensed my mood. And I remember uh, sort of just sitting down there, and, and I go into it more detail in the book, but after getting angry at her, angry at the world, I finally had this revelation, and I said, you know what? Um, we often allow our inability to do everything to undermine our determination to do something. And sometimes all we have to do is something, a little something. And in fact, I just, I'm a big believer that we're all here because of the aggregate of small acts of kindness, decency, and love. And, and that was a lesson harkening back to my father especially. And so I called up my staff with this crazy idea and I said, you know what, let's get a tent and, and, and set it up in, in these projects because I want to go live into that tent and just declare to the world that I'm not going to leave. I won't eat food until we figure out some solutions to it. And I had this powerful moment when I showed up at the projects and we were setting up the tent and I walked over to the tenant president, Elaine Sewell. And this is when I go into the idea a lot in the book about what is grace and how Newark was a place that saw me mess up a lot and mistakes and stumbles, but the ability for people to extend grace, understanding that grace is not earned, um, it's given despite ourselves. It's an it's a, it's a, a aspect of love to me that is amazing. And in Newark, I encountered it uh, beautifully because you would think in a tough inner city that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, but I actually saw moments of grace and compassion and empathy and understanding. You are broken, but we all break. You're drug addicted, but we all are susceptible to that. Um, you've had this horrible thing happen to you. And, and so Elaine, this woman I yelled at and disrespected, as soon as I showed up at that project, she just hugged me, wept in my arms. Before you knew it, we were both crying. And I just said, would you pray with me every morning? I'm not gonna leave here until we figure it out. And it ended up being this time where I just sat and witnessed to the region showing up. As soon as we held the press conference, explained what we were doing, you know, people, I mean, the mayor of a suburban town, West Orange, came down to help out. Hundreds of students so you're, came you're out. You're literally on a 10-day fast. Yes, uh, um, just, um, but it was, it was almost like as soon as you sounded that note, hospitals came out to do health screenings, companies came out to job fairs, people were donating computers. The mayor showed up? Well, so this is the point I was trying to get to yeah. is, it's, there's, there's, um, thank you for bringing me back to no, the point. No, I want to connect So you have to understand, so you're, you're taught to, we're taught in many ways in politics to demonize our enemy, right. um, to not see their humanity, right. uh, to not see their worth. 
And this was my adversary who I had grown in a year so believing he was corrupt or believing he was a quote-unquote bad person. But after 10 days of fasting and prayer, when he showed up, I felt no enmity toward him whatsoever. And I suddenly saw him, probably for the first time, as a a human being. And and this funny thing is about when you write a book, my editor had originally pulled this section out where I talked about the, this moment where I hugged him, yeah, yeah, I and um, I breathed deep. Yeah, and I, I remember s- his smell. I remember his smell. I was, I was like, touched by. I was like, yeah, yeah, really where, interesting thing I, to write about. I, yeah, where I smelled yeah. him, and it sounds weird and funny. Yeah, it does. It reads weird too. But okay, I, uh, <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> But immediately Not with your editor. But anyway, go on. <laughs> but <laughs> it's actually very. This is really good. Go no, on. I'm joking. <laughs> Did I tell you how much I love Gavin's hair? <laughs> Have I said that already? <laughs> there we go. All right. Oh, remember so, so yeah, cute. Okay. okay. But but um. <laughs> You know, I breathe. I, we, the first time we had a human touch, yeah. and remember, in politics, we're seeing this today, yeah. where on a Republican debate, Chris Christie's being castigated for hugging someone, right. for touching another human being, and I had never been this close to the mayor of the city. And when I breathed deep and smelled him, that what got me was, as this older African American man, is that he smelled like my family. He smelled yeah. like elder men yeah. in my family. And I, we, part of the embrace, and I think he was so surprised, as this newspaper wrote, which I quote, right. he took his prepared remarks, yeah, put them away, yeah. and then gave a shocking speech to the crowd. Very complimentary. Where he almost announced that one day I would be mayor. Yeah. And it turned out to be this incredible um, moment uh, that didn't lead to long-term success for the projects. Yeah. And I, I say this Meaning old, he walked away, I mean, candidly, he walked away from his commitments. He, he made some really powerful promises, yeah. that, that one of which he never even tried to do, yeah. which was build the park. park. In there. Yeah. And the other ones that he would keep police out there. They stayed out there for a while, yeah. but eventually the cops went away. Problems came back. Uh, you know, um, that was 2002, uh, excuse me, that was 2000. Six years later, I was the mayor. We, one of the first things we did is build a park, a preschool, and tried to take on the, but the point of the story, which I end on, um, was really just this idea of connectedness. And one of the, my favorite moments as a human being was the final prayer at, the, at these projects where it, here in this area where there's a highway going right over a little bit off to the side of the projects, which cut into the wealthy, some of the wealthiest suburbs in America, um, where people used to come off, buy their drugs, and swoop back on. People have been driving by this, this property and where human beings live, but we fail to cross these imaginary lines. We fail to see each other. Um, but now on this project, when we're holding hands, 100, 200 people for a final prayer that went from the first day, four or five people, to the final day, 100, 100 200 people, and we, we were, I had been, hadn't eaten for 10 days. I hold hands with everybody, open my eyes, and I see white people, black people, Latino, uh, Asian. I see young, old. I see believers and non-believers, rabbis, uh, uh, imams, priests, ministers. And I, I held hands with this circle, and it was the weakest my body had ever been, but it was the strongest I ever felt in my life. And I talk about this, about the, my final prayer because uh, everybody was going around and praying, and I heard Hebrew, I heard Arabic, I heard Spanish, English, and, I, and as people were talking, I just heard the echoes of our ancestors 
You know, there's a powerful song sung during the high holidays uh, by, by Jewish people where the phrase is, which is, may my house be a house of prayer for many nations. There's a, a powerful uh, a Christian saying that says, whenever two or three are gathered together in his name, he is in the midst. Um, all these f- phrases from our ancestry just kept coming back to me to the point of the three Latin words uh, that are the hallmark of this country, e pluribus unum. And it was one of these moments where, again, we didn't solve problems, but for we were present and we did something. And it was sort of this changing moment for me that made me stick it out in politics. Um, because if we can replicate, and you don't have to be a politician to do this, and you know this, um, but if we can f- somehow understand that we as a country are not meant to be divided from each other like we are, that in fact, I think that the lowest form, I, I, and I'm almost get in trouble because I say this because I, I, I dislike this call to tolerance. Yeah. That, that, it's the, that somehow that's the great goal. We should be a tolerant society. Right. But I believe we should move beyond tolerance, that it's a cynical or lazy form of being, that what we should aspire to is love. And love is recognizing that we need each other, <laughs> that we are dependent upon each other, that, that we are each other's hope. And that while rugged individualism and self-reliance are wonderful themes in our society, rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon, rugged individualism didn't map the human, human genome, didn't build our roads and bridges. And this, this pursuit of love, which is hard and it's difficult and you have to be vulnerable, you have to, be, you have to assume that your heart will be broken. But patriotism, which we often use in politics as a sword to demean and to cut other people, I'm better than you in patriotism. But what patriotism really means to me is love of country, and love of country necessitates, demands a love of your country men and women. Right. And so here is, I was on these projects where, where I felt like we were manifesting not tolerance, but but, but love, and it really was a, a seminal changing moment for my life where I said, you know what, uh, I'm gonna stay in politics, um, but I'm gonna change some of my arrogance, some of my ways, um, and the way I try to operate, not only on the city council, frankly, but even uh, in the eventual contest I would have with the mayor for the, for the, uh, for the mayorality. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people, 
So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Let's transition from love, which you may be the only politician I've heard talk about love. God bless. Uh, Let's introduce your father. Let's talk about 2004, your 35th birthday. Uh, so uh, I get... Uh, Emotional because this was one of the, the moments I'm still was still working through. So writing this was hard, and, and so you have to understand my father um, is a, I say is uh, death can end a life, but it can't end a love, and he's still very present with me. And so my father is just extraordinary, charismatic, uh, a funny guy. Uh, my mom is like a gospel, strict gospel hymnal. My dad is like jazz, irreverent, all <laughs> over the place, and. Um, so you get in a, a certain age where your father becomes still your dad, but also your friend as well. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about my father and I is we had these role reversals. Like I've never had a drink in my life. My dad uh, does not like to be without a drink in his life. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> and uh, so he would hang out with my friends as peers. I would be the designated driver. Yep, you're right and, about that. And, and <laughs> when, we would, when we would go out, my dad would literally come to Newark and like, okay, son, you stay home, I'm going out to the club, and he would hang out. I mean, he was just like, he was the, in some ways a better politician than I was around the city, and just it fell in love with this. Remember, he, he, my father brought my brother and I up in a world, a world different than him. He grew up poor. He would heckle me if he heard me saying that he was poor. Don't tell those people I was poor, boy. I was po, P-O. I couldn't afford the other two letters. Um, and um, tell the truth now. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he grew up in Jim Crow, North Carolina, um, and it was this conspiracy of love. He saw the best of humanity uh, break a cycle of poverty going now, I know, back into slavery, getting him to college when it wasn't his vision to go there, had no models for that. In college, again, he witnessed African-American activists and white activists, he would tell me, black and white, gay and straight people, strangers coming into the South to, to dislodge this nation from Jim Crow. And he landed in Washington, D.C., and again, it was a conspiracy of love. He was a qualified African-American, but I don't care what your background is in this country, if you're Irish, if you're a woman, if you're a black, there's sometime corporate America probably didn't want you, and yet the, he saw people come together to help him get his first job. And even when we were moving into, New, into um, Harrington Park, this all-white town, they wouldn't show, oh, Harrington Park. <laughs> it's like, two, this town is two square miles, and we have Harrington Park represented here. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, but they, in, in this 1969, they wouldn't show black families' homes in towns like that. Yeah. And so it was this group of activists, uh, this conspiracy of love, these people who 
uh, white and black, who set up an elaborate sting operation for my parents to move into the town. They were told the house was sold. A white couple found the house for, still for sale. They put a bid on it. The day of the closing, my dad shows up with a lawyer um, to uh, confront the real estate agent, who then punches my dad's lawyer, sigs a dog on my dad. A melee breaks out in the, in the real estate agent's office. And for those of you who are gasping, trust me, every time my dad would tell the story, <laughs> the dog would get bigger. bigger, bigger. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> it went from Toto to Cujo. Um, <laughs> a pack of wolves were in that office, son. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but so we move into this town, and my dad has achieved for himself his Horatial Alger story right. from poverty to this incredible neighborhood, but he was always worried about his kids, and my father would remark to me as I walked around my house with teenage swagger, going on a football scholarship to Stanford, my dad would say, boy, don't you dare walk around this house like you hit a triple, because you were born on third base. And so he, he now raised me to do what I was doing. I'm now in Newark, um, joined with heroes in this community, fighting for kids like him, and he surprises me for a birthday visit in 2004, yeah. and we're walking in a neighborhood, and gunshots ring out, and um, I, I sprint towards where the shooting is. A off-duty cop was behind me, pulls his gun, sprints up the hill after me. There's a young man who's sort of on a stairwell. Uh, the boy had been shot. Me and some other people sort of lay him on the grass, and um, it, 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 it um, it's nothing like, uh, for, I hope most of us have not seen a human being die of a gunshot wound, but it was uh, the most horrific thing I had ever seen, trying to stop the blood coming from his chest, foamy blood starting pouring from his mouth. Um, it just seemed like forever until the um, ambulance got there, shoves me out of the way, rips open his chest. But I had been feeling for pulses. I knew he was dead, but he's loaded in the ambulance, taken to the, to the ER. And, so now I'm standing there, I walk down the hill, cops are asking me questions, the police director comes up to me, but I had now waved my dad off and told him to go home. And so this is probably one of the most painful uh, interactions I had with my dad was, um, I had lost an election in 2002, this was the long gulf until I would get a chance to run for mayor again, mm -hmm. and now I'm, it's 2004, and I'm, I'm probably, this is one of those times where my heart was so broken um, that just blackness entered. And I, I, don't, I barely even remember that walk back to Brick Towers where I was living, but by the time I got upstairs and my dad opened the door and sees his son with another boy's blood on him, he, he, the, the look on his face was uh, one I had never seen before, but I had no, no, patient, no, no interest in it. And I, I, he probably wanted to hug me or say something, but I pushed past him to go into the bathroom and, it, and I got in the bathroom and uh, started trying to clean the blood off my hands and just was trembling and, you know, just started crying in that sink and, you know, took off the clothes that I was wearing in a heap, stood in the shower, and I don't know what this was about, but I turned it on as hot as I could possibly do until it practically burned my skin um, and just was crying in the bathroom and just feeling angry at this world, angry at my country, feeling like I had witnessed now too many boys, particularly in boxes, too much murder and violence. And everybody, I can name names like Jean-Benet Ramsey or Natalie Holloway, 
but could anybody name one kid in my city who had been murdered? Um, do any of them uh, make the headlines? And so my dad said something around to me this time, which I think you're getting at, that was, I think his despair, but, but it really was like a, a punch in the gut, where he said to me he worried that a child born poor to a single mother in a segregated environment um, uh, would be better off, like he was, would be better off born in 1936 than being born today. And me, who I, I'm up as you are actually, uh, obsessed with data, and I just sort of, in my mind, it triggered all these thoughts that, you know, unlike my dad's time, the leading cause of death for young black men is murder. Unlike my dad's time, one out of three black boys born will go to prison. Um, and all the data facing uh, young African-American men. And, and this, is a, uh, this is actually coming towards the end of this chapter where um, I, I, I did not want this to be a book that, you know, the title's United, but to give anybody the illusion that this is an easy road to connection, to love, to courageous empathy, that it is actually really hard. Um, but at this nadir of my journey towards, uh, um, journey through Newark, um, it was Miss Jones. When I, I woke up the next morning and came downstairs and walked through the lobby in this, I felt like I was drowning uh, 25 feet underwater but something eerie when I walked through that lobby and the echoes of Mrs. Jones's son's murder in that lobby sort of jarred me a little bit because I didn't know Wazin Miller, uh, the young boy that died. And then I get into the courtyard and there is um, nobody in the courtyard except for Miss Jones, whose back is to me. And I see her and I just stop. And the, 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 the funk and the fog feels like it's being shaken, and then she, this small elderly woman, turns around, sees me, knows exactly what happened, and like she did before, in the garden, before Garden Spires, she did the same thing. She opened her arms up, and I wanted nothing more um, than to be in her arms, and I walked up to her, and I'm 6'3", and she's five feet, and she just hugs me like a little boy, and I disappear in her mm -hmm. arms, and again, I just start crying, and she just rubs my back, and she says two words over and over, and I'm telling you right now, from that moment till now, even in the Senate, when I get frustrated, when I get despondent, when I get angry, when I feel like I hit a dead end, I respond with these two words spoken by a woman who, never, who, who demonstrated to them to me before she showed them to me, words that have nothing to do with religion, but have to do with the quest of this country, the call of this nation. And she just rubbed my back and said the two words over and over again. She said, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. Yeah. We're going to bring a mic up. And I just encourage folks um, to ask a question. And uh, we'll try to move through as many as possible. First question. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on why you are endorsing Hillary Clinton, which I am as well, so I am, like, very thrilled. Um, especially because, you know, some of the criticism from others within the Democratic Party more on the left is that she has a shameful record from the early 90s of her involvement with 
you know, creating this problem of privatized prisons and mass in, uh, incarceration for the black population. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you've obviously thought through that in a way that you're proud to support her. I, I appreciate the question, even though, again, Gavin and I were joking backstage about um, how this is a, a primary like I've never seen yeah, before, yeah. where, um, you know, every time he, were, he and I are both big on social media, but every time I post a, you know, pro Hillary thing, I get the Bernie backlash. I'm feeling the burn, basically, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like I've never seen before. I know, I'm like, I know. and I'm accused of things that I've, uh, in a, that I've, I've just from some sort of surprise in it. So let me just be very <laughs> blunt um, about two things. So first, second, I'll tell you why I'm endorsing Hillary Clinton. But just please understand. So for for a guy who uh, for two years now in the Senate has. Um, I'm proud of a lot of things I've accomplished in the Senate, from major infrastructure accomplishments uh, for the busiest river crossing in America is the Hudson River, and its infrastructure is failing. Made a lot of progress on that. I can go on the things I'm proud of, but this has been, if anybody knows me in the Senate, this has been one of the issues I've been fighting about since I got there. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. And, you know, everybody, uh, ha- there's so many people with, with dirty hands of the past. Um, the Congressional Black Caucus supported the, the crime bill, uh, the 1994 crime bill. Um, Bernie Sanders voted for the 1994 crime bill. And so to make it about Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, there's an urgency everywhere. Like, it, it, this, this issue's not new. I mean, Senator Sanders in his state has um, barely 1% black people in his state. Um, and, and, and yet, his prison population, uh, the prison population of Vermont, is over 10% black. And, and so these issues of racial disparities, these issues of um, uh, grievous waste of, of human potential and waste of taxpayer dollars, uh, have been going on for a long time in the Senate. And, and my, my issue and urgency um, is not to point fingers of blame, um, it, but take responsibility for being joining with others to, to solve it. And if that is uh, Rand Paul and, uh, and Mike Lee uh, or, or Bernie Sanders and, and the, the Congressional Black Caucus who's united to change this, then I'm going to join with them. But to use this right now as an issue, 
Um, I think that uh, the history that I have of dealing with this when I was an Obama supporter in 08 and the Clintons still were reaching out to me when I was mayor uh, about this issue and how to unravel the problems uh, that Hillary Clinton before this was being talked about by the, the, the Sanders campaign, uh, she made her very first policy speech. I, I've seen the polls on this. This ain't the top issue on, on people's minds, but her very first policy speech was about criminal justice reform, and her office consulted my office uh, on the policy. So uh, going down to why I support Hillary Clinton, it's really two reasons. One, when I sat down with her before this election heated up, and I, uh, this is one of those weird elections where I know most of the people well who are running for president. Oh What's that? No, I, I didn't bring up Ted Cruz, but go on. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, I, I went to Oxford with Bobby Jindal. I sat on a board with Jeb Bush. I uh, passed legislation with Ted Cruz. I've got legislation with Marco Rubio. Um, most of the people running, Chris Christie and I, uh, uh, I can write a dissertation on my disagreements with the man, but we worked very closely, uh, very closely together. Um, so I know the field very well, including the two Democratic candidates. And I'm gonna tell you unequivocally, uh, uh, when you have a policy conversation with Hillary Clinton, um, she knows the subject matter, no matter what the passions are of mine. Um, and, so, and so understand this, I come at this from a guy who, who, who sleeps, goes home, my house is in an urban core in a poor neighborhood, and, uh, and I can go through the nuances, so can Gavin, the nuances of urban housing policy, of homeless issues. And when I talk to her about that, she knows these issues. She knows what's worked. She knows what isn't working. She has ideas about new plans and policy. And then on top of that all, she talks to me very specifically about strategies to get things done in a divided Congress, because we ain't gonna win the House back in, in, 20, uh, in 2016. And then the other thing that she has, which is a, a very important quantity for me, and I think Gavin and I probably learned this having run cities, the powerfully, and I don't know if you would agree with me, but the, one of the most difficult things I had to learn was hiring. Like, how do you hire people and what do you look for when you hire? And so there's a quality that I found and defined as grit. Hmm. And, and so think of a person in American politics that has had more difficulties, hardships from the time that she was first lady of Arkansas and what they said about her and did to her as she was trying to push uh, urb, uh, public education. Think about her being first lady, what they, how dare she stand up and, and, and think about policy and say ridiculous things like, oh my gosh, we should have universal health care. Um, and then the attacks she got from the insurance company, she took a failure there, but yet then rises yet again to higher levels of service. They under, I was in the New York area and saw what they tried to do to her to stop her from being United States Senator. I saw what, they, what, they, what happened, we all did, when she ran for president and lost. Every time she gets hit, every time she gets pushed back, she keeps coming back. Every loss, every stumble, she rises again to a higher level of service. And you judge a person most when people aren't watching. And so when she, now I know a lot about her when she was Secretary of State and, and what she was doing around this globe to deal with issues that we don't talk about enough, whether it was the, the gentle mutilation of women and what she did to fight for that, standing up in China and fighting uh, for women's rights, going to places like the African sub-Saharan continent and talking about economic empowerment of women. And so I-, I so, Wait, wait, Sue, so you are running for vice president. Uh, 
Is that what it? I knew something was up. This book tour, the, there's something going on, Booker. I'm on to you. I, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Okay, so I mean, come on, Gavin. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a gauntlet you just throw down because you know you're not gonna be a lieutenant governor forever. I can start I talking about. <laughs> All right, don't next get me started. Question. Now you better question. go next. Who else do we have? Hoo-ha. <laughs> All right. Um, Senator Booker, hold on. Where where you. are you in the way? I am right here. Wave your hand in the air. I'm here. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay. on black. Maybe you can't see me. I see, sister, I see you clearly, <laughs> clearly. My but if you is, want to come a little closer, give me a hug. Oh, of course, absolutely. Okay. okay. My name is Sandra, and I want to thank you for being so fluid about faith and the way it has influenced you. Many say of you, if this country is to elect another African-American president, it will be Cory Booker. <laughs> What, my question is, what does Cory Booker say about ascendancy to president of these United States? <laughs> I was wondering why she walked in with you. Oh, she did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now I get it. She's my, she's yeah, my cousin, man. She's right, my I cousin. It. I got it. Okay, so, strange, yeah. so somebody tweets at me, the other, I love Twitter, and, and somebody tweets at me, will you be the VP like Gavin was being a smart guy. Um, um, and I said, yes, next year I will be Hillary's VP, vegan practitioner. Um, and um, um, so Gavin and I uh, both know this. Again, I, I can really speak for Gavin's heart. I've had a lot of heart to hearts with him over the years. And I'm a big believer that when politicians often get into a position, especially the Senate, and you know this, if you start thinking about um, what is that next office it often undermines your integrity and authenticity about where you are right now. Life, life really is. Um, life should be, especially in our professional career, life should be about purpose, not position. And there are times when we may have views, like I do, that may make it harder to get to the presidency, if that was an ambition. And, and I will never want to shirk on those views now. As one of my friends told me, uh, there ain't no way a vegetarian will ever get elected to the White House. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I made it even more challenging and became a vegan. Um, so, so, but I will say this, what you said about faith, and I think this is really important. Um, so uh, we live in, uh, in, an, in a nation, I think, where sometimes faith and that idea of patriotism that I talked about before is often used to put people down and not to elevate. And I, I'm a big believer that we should talk about authentically about who we are in, in the political space. I never want to hide from people uh, my spiritualism, but I do want to be somebody that has, a, has believes that before someone, and I say this all the time, wait, wait, before you tell me about your religion, show it to me and how you treat other people. And, and so I, I, I thank you for your, your remarks about faith, um, but I, I just really believe that what we need in, in this country uh, is, is a set of civic values um, that, that we herald uh, more than people who are, are preaching about uh, their religious. And, and for us to be at a point in America where we are allowing fear to so change us 
um, um, that I, I talked to earlier today, uh, uh, somebody who was French, and to watch the French be attacked uh, in, in horrific ways, and we were all removed uh, by that, and then them come back and say, you know what, we're gonna take 30,000 refugees, we're not gonna let um, ourselves be changed. And I, and I joked that, after hearing what some of the commentary was by their politicians, I joked that, um, that, uh, that the French were trying to out-America us, um, <laughs> because our response for some people was to shut down this country uh, to allowing Muslims to come into this country. And so in, 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 I think that all of our life we have one thing to do over and over again, one choice to make, either to live our truth or diminish it, to tell our, uh, the world about uh, ourselves authentically without words, uh, or to shrink from that, to take responsibility for, or for what's going on or accept things as they are. And for those people who don't, aren't satisfied with the status quo, uh, and want to accept responsibility for change. Before we talk about what other people are doing or criticize other folks, um, I just hope that um, before we criticize, uh, we first ask ourselves, what more could I be doing uh, myself to make change? Because I said this to a couple that came up to me about their daughter, and I'll end here, but I think it's true for us, period, not just for in the way that James Baldwin says it. Um, but James Baldwin is my favorite author, and I think two of the, two of the best, a few of the best pages of literature uh, for me was The End of the Fire Next Time, where he writes a very painful book. I love that Baldwin does not shrink from talking about the wretchedness of reality, but then he always comes back to hope, which I write about, a long, long passage about what I think hope is, which Ms. Jones showed me this, it's a response uh, to despair. It doesn't exist in the abstract. It's not letting despair have the last word. And Baldwin writes at the end of this book, uh, I know what I'm asking you is impossible, but in today's day and age, the impossible is the least we can demand. And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general, and Negro history in particular, for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. And so Baldwin says, and this is where the quote I wanted to end on, which I said to a couple about their daughter earlier tonight, Baldwin says that, and I don't think of this just in terms of children and elders, but Baldwin says that children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And, and what I believe about each other, and I take, when Gavin, um, um, who was mayor before me, um, was so courageous, um, I entered the mayorality. Uh, what year were you elected mayor? Oh, uh, 03. 03. What year did that? Uh, 04. 04. And I was elected 06. Yep. And, I'm, and I, don't, I say this very purposefully. When I saw the courage of Gavin Newsom, I walked into office. One of the first things I did, Gavin, was to raise the pride flag. And I got hate calls, and not anonymous hate calls. I got people calling me up telling me who they were <laughs> and, <laughs> and what they thought about voting for me and how they made a mistake. And then uh, I declared yeah. um, that I would yeah. not perform marriages. I, yeah, I and, but I said it no, wrong. No, you were extraordinary. But, but I'm telling you, your, no, courage, your courage helped to ignite my courage. And my mom got upset to me when I announced I wouldn't marry people. My mom's like, just marry one person, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but we don't. <laughs> they finally got that. Yes, yeah, they it finally took a little while. It's one of those. The rolling. The yeah, slow no, rolling right, jokes. Yeah. So I just have to say. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. to the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.